Okay, okay. I want you to f do like a fill in the blank sort of exercise. So I thrive the most when blank. I would say I thrive the most when, when I feel like I can speak my mind. Sometimes I feel like I have like so many ideas and so many things that I want to say. And I just want, want to be able to like have a conversation with someone about these ideas. And sometimes when I'm in spaces where I feel like I have to think too much about how other people perceive me, I never actually like get my ideas across as I want them to. I'm like, I always like sugarcoat them or I'm a bit more cautious with the language that I use. But in other spaces, when there's people around me that make me feel like I can just you know, just have a conversation with them about whatever comes to my mind and like it'll be just a discussion. Um, I feel like I can like just truly be myself. And my supervisor does a really great job at this, like shout out to him if he's listening. But he makes me feel like I can just, um, if any idea comes up to mind, I can just like send him an email and we can just discuss it. I don't have to think about it too much. And I feel like that's really important because again, goes back to that conversation of what do you bring to academia and science and research? Like it's not just your productivity. You also bring in your ideas and you have to be able to have that space to just bounce off ideas off of your supervisor, with your lab members, with other people. Yeah, that's that's my answer. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say like, and, and I always do this in like a lot of lab meetings and, and meetings with other people is that I don't feel like my ideas are good enough to be brought up. Um, and I'm sure like, maybe it stems from me being a minority, maybe it doesn't, but I'm sure like a bunch of other people also feel the same way. I would say I thrive the most in environments that support learning. I love being able to learn new things, try different things. And I love when making a mistake is not the end of the world. So being able to like trial and error and just learn new things without the pressure of having to do it perfectly or getting it right all the time. Um, I, I love that. Great. Those are all great, great answers all around. What about you, Daniel? You had an answer. Oh, honestly, I didn't even, I, I wasn't even thinking about me. <laughs> Daniel was too busy thinking about how to, how to ask us the question. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my mind was working in overdrive there. Um, I thrive the most when I, when I feel comfortable and not, I'm not, that's not to say I don't get out of my comfort zone every now and then, but I will say that if I want to do, you know, the things that I enjoy, um, being in a space where I feel comfortable to do that um, helps a lot. That was a fun conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, I learned a lot. It's too bad that we couldn't meet in person to host that roundtable. But we've been recording our episodes remotely for a while now, so we've gotten used to it. But anyway, today's episode is going to be structured a little differently. Yeah, so we sat down with a few of our episode team members and some guests to speak about issues surrounding representation in STEM, being an underrepresented student in the field, what's missing and what works, and basically just a whole lot more in between. We also discussed what it's like to be an international student in Toronto. At IMS, we have a large international student body, and we thought that their perspectives were important in this episode. But before we jump into all that, we'd like to acknowledge that we're all working here in Toronto, which is the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. 
And this meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. And we're very grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore these topics on being an underrepresented student in STEM, we are mindful that today's episode is just the tip of the iceberg and may not necessarily be representative of Indigenous student perspectives. And Indigenous students make up 4% of Canada's population, yet less than 2% of the population are working in STEM fields. Despite initiatives to improve representation in STEM fields, few of them reach a large number of Indigenous learners. And we've linked a few resources in our show notes on this issue for anyone who wants to learn a little bit more. Right. Thank you for that, Rachel. So in this episode, we'll be listening to our guest interview clips along with you folks and reflect back on them as we go. So we hope you enjoy some of our reflections. My name is Daniel. And I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 103 of Raw Talk Podcast. Okay, so let's hear from Leanne Alfaki, a second-year master's student at the Institute of Medical Science and the president of the Black Graduate Student Association at the University of Toronto. She speaks to us on what diversity in STEM means to her. So to me, diversity means having individuals from different backgrounds within your space. I feel like diversity also goes hand-in-hand with inclusivity because through setting up an inclusive space, you'd be allowing individuals from different backgrounds, not just ensuring their comfortability with being in the space, but you'd also be allowing them to voice their opinions. I believe that's critical to having more heterogeneous environments and cohesive working environments where individuals feel safe and comfortable voicing their opinions, as opposed to you know spaces that are more homogeneous and an individual from a marginalized community can feel you know, rather discouraged from voicing their opinion. That's, I believe that's really important. And why is representation so important? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I think by having representation in STEM and all other career fields, we would be allowing for the sharing of not just unique perspectives, but also skill sets as well as experiences. Again, it cultivates you know, a more heterogeneous working environment where creativity and ideas are welcome. And I believe all of that together ultimately accelerates the progress that we can have as a society. But on the flip side as well, I think representation is important in terms of, you know, the younger youth who are just turning out their careers. You know, just from my experience, seeing someone who looks like me, but was able to make it and is successful in certain career fields To me, that's evidence that they made it, so can I. And I believe that's a really important point, which can often differentiate between whether an individual feels the encouragement to pursue certain fields or not. Totally, yeah. I think so many of these terms like, you know, diversity and representation and all these things are like, they've turned into these buzzwords that we throw around at this point, right? 100%. So we just heard from Atifa, who is wrapping up a conversation with Leanne on representation. And we kind of discussed this as a topic, as an episode team, in a mini roundtable with Vina, Rachel, Noor, Atifa, and myself. So many, so many thoughts and feelings in this one. Um, I mean, I, I think we've reached a point where it's pretty clear why representation is important. And I just can't 
say enough how critical I feel representation is for any sort of success in any environment. And I think that's because representation inherently brings diversity, which invites new perspectives and ideas and new ways of thinking. And all of these things then encourage success and development and just doing bigger, greater things. So I think when I see a lack of representation and diversity in any space, to me, it just looks like a missed opportunity for growth and creativity. And it kind of encourages like a fixed mindset once you don't introduce those different perspectives. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think when I think of representation and I people who like share similar values or identities as mine, and I see them succeed in academic and research settings, it goes beyond just watching someone who looks like you or it goes beyond that. It's more about knowing that you, there is space in academic and research settings for someone with a similar identity, similar values, or a similar way of understanding the world to some extent. And so to me, when I think of that, it kind of feels like, well, if that person's values and identity is like valued in this space, then maybe that there's room for my ideas as well. That's what it feels like when I see people who look like me in these spaces. Yeah, lots, lots of nods around from everybody. The first thing that popped into my head was seeing, so we're all in research and we all know studies are really, in, I mean, as objective as we try to make them, it's conducted by humans and humans are not objective creatures. Um, and so the questions that we ask, um, even the methods sometimes that we plan out are really influenced by where we come from and how we think and seeing people who look like us. It reminds me that we're starting to ask questions about marginalized communities who are not often included in samples. And then of course, it's always empowering to see somebody who looks like you in a space that you want to eventually occupy. I think that actually relates to some past Raw Talk episodes that we've had on representation and studies. Unless I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nora. I'm like trying to think of the episodes that we've had. I feel like we've spoken about this concept like in a few episodes. Yeah, it's not a specific one, but we've the idea has been discussed multiple times. Right. It's out there somewhere. So if any listeners are interested, I guess you're going to have to listen to all the episodes to find out more. Some of the challenges that I have faced as an individual who's from a underrepresented group in STEM include the lack of community. I think this was first became apparent to me for in first year of undergrad, you know, when I was sitting in one of my first year biology classes at Convocation Hall, because I went to U of T, and I remember looking around and thinking that there weren't many Black students other than myself. And I remember feeling very isolated, not just in, in that moment, but just having been aware of that fact. So I think, you know, needless to say, when you feel isolated and when you feel like there isn't that community for you, it ultimately affects your mental health, which I feel like then reflects in your academic performance. So, you know, for me being aware of that, as well as, you know, having experienced the lack of representation and mentorship as a Black woman in STEM, all of these, you know, experiences together led me to really pursue STEM advocacy and EDI. So for example, back in 2018, I actually co-founded a UFT recognized initiative, which was called Step Into STEM. 
along with uh, six other graduate students at the time. So, you know, through being part of Step into STEM, we aim to tackle these, the inequitable access to resources that individuals from marginalized communities often face. So, you know, just to give you an example, our first collaborative event, we actually collaborated with the Toronto Community Housing Corporation to connect about 100 plus youth from low income communities and connected those youth with uh, racialized faculty and you know graduate members which then you know provided that mentorship and guidance and i think the best part about that event was the fact that we also provided transportation as well as eliminating attendance cost and you know in that way we mi we mitigated all barriers that would have prevented you know these youth from joining our event so that was a really great example of how removing what seems like a small barrier, such as transportation, can make the biggest difference in who has access to certain opportunities and spaces. Yeah, and she mentions the importance of mentorship too, which actually, I think we spoke about mentorship a little bit in our mini episode team roundtable. So let's see if we can rewind to that. I think different people have different strengths within that too, I guess. But to me, the way... I love to give back is mentorship. We were actually discussing this idea in, a, in the burnout episode, I think, but I really dislike the mentality of if I struggle through this thing, then you should too. And so I'm a big believer of mentorship and teaching because I love being able to help someone else through something I found difficult or challenging. And being able to guide them through that, share whatever I learned in hopes of making it easier for them. So I, I really find that way of thinking counterintuitive. And it's a mentality that I think unfortunately is like particularly perpetuated in science. So I, I really appreciate what my mentors have done for me. And when other scientists or other graduate students have been nice to me, helped me with a protocol technique, whatever it is. So. I'd rather choose to focus on that and pay it forward. That's what I like to do. There, there is so much that we can do as individuals, mentoring other students, maybe like being involved in like student groups. There's like different ways that we give back personally, but that isn't how you achieve bigger changes, bigger systematic changes. Like that needs to come from institutions as well. Like we need more supports for students, more resources, more scholarships. It's, it's tough sometimes. I feel like there's that intention from institutions sometimes to increase diversity and they have all these like events and training, but I just don't ever feel like it translates to something concrete that is actually helpful sometimes. So I think that it has to come from institutions as well for them to actually want to implement concrete ideas and changes that will actually help students. And I think that also starts with just asking people or like truly trying to understand what the experiences are of underrepresented students in STEM and letting even like letting them drive that change themselves as well. Instead of just kind of like assuming like, yeah, maybe we need another like diversity training like that doesn't necessarily work all the time. So I agree with you, Noor. I think the only way I could kind of generalize it or describe the feeling for me was just the general feeling of isolation or feeling singled out throughout. It was the same like entering university, but also entering grad school. And 
it came up right when I was applying to grad school, right? When none of my close friends had applied to grad school or done a research stream program like I wanted to. So I didn't have anyone to guide me through the process, right? A lot of the times people would say, oh, like I just showed my applications to my parents and they helped me. Like I just couldn't relate to any of those feelings. And then once I did start grad school, I still felt isolated because my lab just happened to not have other grad students or with everything being virtual due to the pandemic, I didn't have access to peers or other people within my graduate community or departmental community. So it was just unfortunate. And while talking to other people, I've, I've been finding that it's a fairly common experience actually, and I'm not alone in that. So I remember when I decided that I wanted to do my master's, there was a lot of things that were up in the air and I didn't really have a lot of familiarity with the process. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you don't really know that you need to do until you're actually in graduate school and you're like, oh my God, wait, I could have done this instead. That would have been much easier for me back when you're applying. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of people around me as well that didn't, uh, that wanted to kind of continue into academia as well. So I think that was probably one challenge that was kind of prominent at the time, but yeah. Yeah, starting to hear a lot of themes around like a lack of support going into grad school is one of the challenges. Rachel, do you want to expand on that? I definitely uh, agreed with the feeling of being isolated when I guess when you enter grad school. My parents didn't go to university as well. My mom didn't finish high school. And then I think every child of an immigrant feels somewhat of that weight on their shoulders of doing school, not just for yourself, but also for your parents and for your family. So that was a, a challenge and not really a challenge that you can really put into words. So maybe there's just a lack of support there because there's not as much shared experience among your peers or among uh, professors or guidance counselors or whoever you can go to in university for support. So. You mentioned something about like that pressure of being a child of immigrants or like being an immigrant yourself. It's almost like when I look back at my like grad school application process, it wasn't just me going through it. It was it was my parents, it was my family friends, it was people at like the community centers. Everyone knew I was applying to grad school and they were like it felt kind of like a group process in a way. Um even though like I was the one who was like doing the applications and they didn't it was more so like they had that like emotional investment in my graduate school journey. And I feel like that's kind of nice, but it also does feel like there is a lot of pressure as well to like be excellent in the things that you do, not just for yourself, but also for the sake of like your community and like what you represent of your community too. So yeah, that just, that just reminded me of that when you said that. I think, um, for me, like one of the biggest to give some context on this is I had moved to Canada the same year that I started university. So it's kind of like going through this process of, okay, I need to like catch up with things academically and like do well there. But I also need to like build a social network from scratch it's in a country where I didn't know anyone and also like adjust to this like new culture around me. And I think like one of the biggest things was, yes, like I, I sometimes find myself in spaces where I look around, I'm like, okay, I kind of like register. I'm the only person here who is wearing the hijab or the headscarf. And like, I kind of like register that in my head, but that isn't necessarily kind of the biggest struggle. It's not necessarily that I'm the only person in that room who feels, who looks this way. It's more so about 
feeling out of place sometimes. It's like I walk into certain spaces and I think I might have to like adjust the way that I speak or like adjust the way that I answer certain questions just so I kind of like fit in with the way of thinking that people have here. And I think that was kind of like the biggest struggle that I had. Yeah, like it's just it's just like you grow up somewhere and then you come somewhere else and then you just kind of like have to understand that people think in different ways. And I felt like I was constantly thinking about, you know, I would see myself as a person. I would think of myself as just a person. But I wondered like, how do other people like perceive me? Do they would they think about me a certain way if I said a certain thing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think in terms of like student groups on campus, at least, um, I've noticed like a growing trend. Well, in addition to like student groups for those that are systemic, systematically excluded, I'm also seeing like a, a growing trend of like a lot of student groups are now creating positions to have better representation for certain groups. So like an example of that would be like international students. There's a lot of student groups and student councils in the past that didn't have these positions that are now creating positions for international students, which I think is great since they make up such a large portion of our of our student base on campus. Uh, and another example would be the IMS International Group, which I had the pleasure of interviewing with as well. So how, how do you think the group, the IMS International Group, how do you think the IMS International Group has benefited the graduate student, not only for yourself, but also for others that are involved? I can say it's a given fact that international students, you know, have high level of resilience. They are well educated. They have been, you know, able to move continents and come here in Canada and start studying. But on the other hand, they are in the disadvantage of not knowing the culture around here. Uh, I'm talking about both academic culture as well as, you know, the culture at the society level. So uh, the initiatives that uh, we have come up with, and I'm going to go through each of them in order to mention how the students uh, have probably or hopefully uh, benefited them. So the initiative that we came uh, up with was at first seminar series. What are these seminar series? We invite a scholar with international background. So they are probably postdoc fellows. They are, they have been psychiatric residents, uh, scientists, lab managers, and almost all of them with PhD, you know. So these scholars have kindly agreed to share their experience with our society. Uh, we have also come up with another initiative, which is uh, the book club. And the book club is actually a place that people sit and find new friends. You know, when you have a kind of common hobby with another person, something to talk about, food, music, or book, you know, so you will start to know each other. And that barrier between two people, you know, is just going to dissolve. And this has been the most important reason that we wanted to have the book club. We have also had, you know, some unofficial networking session for international students. I think we have been quite successful, but not that much. You know, why? Because we haven't been able to attract all the international students at U of D and IMS to attend our meetings, you know, our, and our initiatives. So the fact that students have given us positive feedback gives us more energy, you know, but it doesn't satisfy us because we know that we can definitely do 
a lot more. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we can do that. Okay, so we've covered a few different perspectives so far. And can I just say, I, I learned a lot from that interview with Mosen. Uh, I, I really loved it too. And it really sounds like the international student group at U of T is, is doing a lot to make sure that international students get a sense of belonging. I agree. For a lot of grad students, being in a new environment with high expectations of success might have them feeling like they don't belong there. And in our next clip, Atifa discusses this concept with Leanne. So from my experiences, I have felt a lot of imposter syndrome, especially, for example, before attending graduate school, having been aware that, you know, not many Black individuals are in graduate school. I think that in and of itself ultimately led me to feel like an imposter. However, I think that also made me realize how important mentorship is and having the right mentors and having the right community that supports you. Obviously, if that community was made up of like, of individuals who resemble you, that's, you know, the ultimate goal. But that community was, can also be achieved by, you know, allies as well. So, and luckily that has been my experience in graduate school. I can fortunately say that I've had the best supervisor and as well as lab experience. I feel like we're all just very supportive of one another and we uplift one another which to me obviously is an invaluable experience. And I realize how lucky I am in having that experience. Now that's just, I'm curious to know, but do you find that you faced a lot of stereotypes? I realize how fortunate I am in having that. For me being in my specific lab is the fact that there is diversity within our lab. So there's another, you know, black individual. There's individuals in our lab come from very different backgrounds as well. So I feel like, again, just by virtue of having individuals from different backgrounds, there's ultimately, I feel like individuals become diverted away from using stereotypes. However, I think the point that you brought up about, you know, stereotypes, and maybe this relates to me personally, or my personality, I would say, is the fact that I'm more soft-spoken than some individuals are. And I feel like because of that, I've had to almost prove myself and be extra assertive to show that being soft-spoken doesn't mean I can't be a leader. You know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I can be soft-spoken, but I can still be assertive. And I'm, again, by default, you know, again, soft-spoken doesn't mean I'm lazy or I'm not assertive or, you know, all things that, you know, stereotypically you wouldn't associate with that. So I feel like because of that, I've had to work hard to just demonstrate what I can bring to the table and my skill set, as well as, you know, the unique set of experiences that I bring to the table, which other individuals may not necessarily have. But, you know, I think it's definitely been a growth experience and a learning curve from that regard. And I feel like it taught me how to be extra assertive and, yeah, just to be more assertive, like overall. Totally. I, I Yeah, that's a great point, actually, with like, even if you're nice or like you're soft-spoken, right? Like, doesn't mean I shouldn't be heard. Like, that's just who I am. But it, and I feel like maybe it's something more underrepresented students can relate to as well. But like the need to feel that you need to be louder or like you need to spend so much more energy overall to, to feel like you're heard, right? So I sat down with Dr. Andrew Bagald earlier She's an associate professor at the U of T and a medical director of the Tropical Disease Unit at the UHN. 
and we had a great conversation about diversity and mentorship, particularly her approach to mentorship, where she makes a conscious effort to create safe spaces for underrepresented students. I'm curious as to when you first became aware about, you know, the lack of diversity in STEM, is that something that you've always known about? I grew up in in a suburban GTA. It was very homogeneous. We had very little in the way of uh, racial diversity in uh, my hometown uh, at the time. Of course, that's changed uh, over the past 40 years. Um, During my undergraduate studies, I was exposed to certainly a bit more racial diversity. I studied down in Alabama at at Auburn University, which is where I completed my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree before coming back to Canada for medicine and residency and fellowship. But, you know, really the the glaring inequity that exists in STEM really became so obvious during my medical training back here at the University of Toronto. Um, We had very little in the way of black representation in my undergraduate medical school class. We were the smallest class where we had a a total uh, denominator of 177 students in our class, uh, undergraduate medicine class here at U of T back when I started in 1999. And there were at that time, I believe, five black students in our class. Uh, Thereafter, there were periods where there were either zero or one students who identified as as black or African Canadian. And, uh, you know, that trend certainly bore out over time as I advanced up the academic trajectory and um, through fellowship training, secured a faculty appointment. And then once I became a faculty myself, it became evident that, you know, research training programs were equally devoid of that racial representation. I'd love to know then, what does diversity in STEM mean to you? So diversity in STEM essentially means to me that we should be representing our constituency at that academic level. And whether that's at the student level or the faculty level or the decanal level, across the academic enterprise, we need to be representing the groups whom we serve as scientists and physicians. So obviously we all recognize that there is a a very complex web or wheel of social location, of of degrees of privilege, but at the very basic level, we we know already that we are not doing a a tremendous job of representing all of the voices of our communities that we could at our our student level, at the undergraduate level, at the postgraduate level, at the uh, professional training program level, and really diversifying in terms of decentering the 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 white ableist colonial patriarchy is is really, I think, one of the the keys to to really committing to representing everybody whom we serve. I just really love that she's talking about representation at the leadership level. Like recently I read a paper outlining just how when there's representation at the decision-making level, constituents are a lot more open to agreeing with and listening to the ideas of the decision-makers. That sounds like a really cool paper. We'll have to put it in our show notes. And I really enjoyed that interview with Dr. Beguiled. 
the biggest takeaway for me is that diversity in healthcare and research can be summed up as people who serve the public being representative of the public that they're serving. That's that's really well said. Okay, so let's hear more about putting these ideas into action then. Leanne and Mosen are both student leaders at IMS, and they talked to us about how their initiatives were started up. So let's rewind to that. So I think because of my interest in EDI and STEM advocacy, which had emerged from you know all these different experiences that I had been part of in undergrad, once I graduated, I knew I wanted to continue that interest and that pursuit, but I wasn't necessarily sure of how I can implement that. So then I remember just one day, I stumbled upon you know, a, a recruitment post for the BGSA or the Black Graduate Student Association. And I knew at that point that you know, it, it was almost like it was the perfect opportunity for me you know, because it was at the graduate level, but then I knew that I could still work towards all the, you know, all the different initiatives that I care about personally and I'm passionate about. You know, going into this year, I knew that the president position would be vacant. And I knew that, you know, if there wasn't anyone to fill that position, I felt a responsibility to be in that position because if it wasn't going to be me, I knew that position would be, would remain empty. And honestly, it, it has been one of the fulfilling experiences for me so far. So just to give you some idea about the events that we run, we host a lot of different events, you know, aimed at advancing interprofessional development of students on one hand, but also their mental health and forming that community on the other hand within the black graduate atmosphere. So, um, you know, again, we run events that are geared more towards mental health. And for instance, last year, we invited mental health professionals at various levels of training and then just had a discussion panel about struggles or issues that you know black individuals face in terms of mental health and but as well on the other side how we can cope with them and i believe that's important piece as well it's important to talk about your struggles but also offer the resources for how to cope with such struggles and honestly that event was i would say one of my favorite events just because of the vulnerability that everyone was able to contribute, not just in terms of the panelists, but also the attendees. Again, from that event, I realized the importance of the BGSA in cultivating such spaces, which otherwise you know, would not have been possible. Well, um, so let me answer this question in this way. This group was formed, okay, by three international students and a faculty advisor, uh, as I mentioned before, and if the support of this faculty advisor and the head of IMS, Dr. Liu, you know, uh, did not exist, I believe this group could not have continued. The fact that these people supported the group is telling us something. It's telling us that, okay, they have recognized the need to have a student body in order to support the international students. Because even though IMS has done amazing for its international students and underrepresented students, there is still some space of improvement, you know. And is forming IMS International the end of the story? Of course not. There is still space to improve, you know. And right now, I think you yourself are aware of this. We have formed some bonding with the other student groups at IMS. We, we are trying, you know, to have collaborations 
Why? Because we actually want to improve, okay? And this has been well received by the institution as well. So right now, IMS International is recognized by SAFE Committee. So everybody voted, you know, for IMS International to join the committee. So it shows that the institution is also supporting this idea, you know. And uh, there is always space of improvement. And so I think we are in the right path of doing so. Like if a genie gave you a wish, snap of a finger, you could change one thing, what would that one thing be? Can I ask yeah. the genie for more wishes? <laughs> That's one thing, unfortunately, genie can't do that. So just one thing. I mean, it's kind of tough. Like, where do you even start? Like it's, because sometimes it feels like when I think about these issues, they start like way, way back, like from when, like before even you start university, right? Like it's, it's such a big thing sometimes when I think about it. I don't know, it's tough. If someone else wants to <laughs> chime in. Do you have one, Daniel? <laughs> I mean, uh, like personally speaking, I would say representation. Just, I, you know, it would be great if every single decision making and every, you know, decision making process in, in person or council or government or whatever, just had that representation, had those voices involved in the process. Um, and like we've talked about this, institutions encourage this diversity training, they encourage diversity but we rarely see that happening in real life. And I feel like if we did have that in real life, if that was a reality, we'd be able to make more informed decisions on how to improve the experiences of minorities and underrepresented individuals in STEM. Uh, I saw Nora's hand up as well, and then Rachel, so Nora. I think having representation would be like really, really important, but it's also like who even gets to decide who has like a voice in the table, right? Like it's. It's, it's just tough and maybe like that's why it's so hard for us to come up with an answer because it's not that easy like it's a very complex issue. I think like we try our best to like do things at an individual level but we also try to speak to our institutions and we try to drive that change but sometimes it feels like this is such a big thing it's like almost like a it's a collective effort that needs to be done to actually implement that kind of change. Um, and sometimes I think even with representation, like just having someone from a minority group in the table for the sake of it doesn't necessarily achieve change. What's great about EDI work is that individuals from all backgrounds can contribute to it. So that's a great aspect. But in that regard, especially when, you know, those working groups aren't made of the underrepresented or marginalized students themselves, Sometimes these voices get lost or diluted almost within the crowd. So I think because of that, it's really important to make sure that you're actually listening to those marginalized or underrepresented students themselves and, you know, listening to their needs ultimately rather than, you know, predicting them. I think the most direct approach to me is just asking, reach out to the underrepresented individuals and ask them, you know, what are some areas that you, you feel like we can support you, whether it be mentorship, providing resources, scholarships, financial support? It's important to not just listen, but also really take into account what these individuals are saying. Because it's one thing to listen for the sake of listening. 
It's another thing to listen with the goal of implementing what they're telling you. And I think what goes hand in hand with that is making these individuals feel like what they have to say is appreciated. From my experience, I realized that that's really key to encouraging marginalized individuals to speak up and voice their opinions. Because, you know, often the case where you're in environments that you feel like you're outnumbered or there aren't individuals who are like you, sometimes you almost feel like, what if what I have to say is inconsequential or is not the right thing? You know, it makes you question the validity of what you have to say. And because of that, it discourages you from voicing your opinion. So I feel like because of that, it's really important to listen, but also really empower such individuals when they do voice their opinions. Okay, so that was a lot to unpack. And I totally agree that there's like a feeling of hesitancy when it comes to sharing your opinion. And I feel like that's a very first generation immigrant sort of experience. Like it made me think about Hasan Minhaj's Homecoming King, uh, one of his comedy specials, where he kind of goes into, and let me see if I can pull up the quote actually. So he says, my dad's from that generation where he feels like if you come to this country, you pay the American dream tax, you endure racism, and if it doesn't cost you your life, pay it. Totally. This quote reminds me of the mentality that many of my elders have. It's not even something that I ever consciously think about. Yeah, I totally agree. And I like to think that we're now fostering a healthier mentality as well. All right, so back to our roundtable. Atifa touches on the experience of being a minority in academia, which, well, every minority student can relate to, but it's a little difficult to describe. Yeah, so she said something that I really liked about having a more resilient type of mentality. Let's go back to that. Generally, being a minority in academia sucks. So it's, it's, um, it comes with a lot of feelings, but I think for myself, thankfully, I've been able to reach a stage where in either scenario I find myself in, I have the strength to encourage myself. So whenever I'm in an environment where I do see others that look like me, it's incredible. It makes me feel seen and heard and proud, even if you don't know the person, right? And just like, I too exist and I'm valid. And so of course that leads you to feeling motivated, having this feeling of if they could do it, then surely I can too. And then whenever I find myself in an environment where I don't see anyone who looks like me, instead of pondering on that feeling of, oh, well, like, does that mean like, this is not a place for me, like I can't do it or, kind of actually lights a fire in me now where I'm like well I guess someone's got to do it <laughs> and it motivates me to keep going and do what I'm doing so I try to emphasize that and choose this feeling and way of thought rather than like a defeated mentality. Yeah I really love that way of thinking because I feel like sometimes I do find myself in these spaces where I'm like I'm the only person here but you know what like maybe I should like use this position to like bring in more people like me like I feel like it kind of encourages me to like be that bridge for like why aren't there more people here like me um yeah I mean I think you know I was just thinking about it recently like how being a minority makes you you're kind of forced to build resilience and things that other people may not necessarily have to and yeah it kind of gives you a thick skin but it also makes you think oh my gosh you know it's kind of disheartening that 
in some cases, you know, there may be individuals that are put off or deter away from doing things that they want to do because they feel like they can't do it or they don't have others uh, around them that are within their community that are also doing the things that they want to do. And I think, you know, your mentality at Tifa is really, really great to see that you're you're able to kind of switch it around uh, and use that to kind of fuel you to, you know, keep going and try to bring others um, within your community, uh, within your space as well. All right. So let's hear a little bit about your journeys going into grad school then. Noor, would you like to start us off? Um, so <laughs> that's such a big question because I feel like it's something that you only realize when you're like thinking back to it. When I think of my time in undergrad, like I felt like I was so... I was so young and naive, even though that was like two years ago, but I felt like I was just kind of like, you know, I'll take the courses that I'm interested in and I'll see how it goes. You know, like I have an idea of what I want to do with my career, but I don't know, like I'll see how it goes. And I just, I was just like so immersed in my like career development that sometimes I feel like I've kind of like neglected my personal development in a way. And I feel like now in grad school, that's something that I really try to focus on is like, I'm a person who does research and I'm a student, but I'm also like a person outside of that. And I have hobbies and interests and I have like friendships and relationships to maintain with people. So that's kind of like been a very important part of my journey. And I think that that's also like very important as an underrepresented student, sometimes you feel so out of place in the spaces that you're in and you almost kind of like feel like you have to like go out of your way to like prove who you are and like excel at everything that you do and you kind of forget that you're you're a person too and you kind of like bring in your own unique experiences and your values and your ideas so yeah that's something that I'm I'm still working on I'm not very good at but that's been my journey I think it's also something that it takes time for you to kind of develop um, and it's all part of your journey. And I think uh, my journey is still continuing and um, yeah, I'm just now taking the time to appreciate the different experiences I'm having right now. And I think uh, being an individual that is a part of a minority group is something that I'm coming to realize is also part of my journey as well. So. I think for me, I same with what you were saying, Vina. I relate to what you were saying, Noor, about how a lot of these realizations come when you look in hindsight, right? And I think for me, I often think about how I've done all these things that I never would have imagined and just as easily could have never done because my journey in university, everything's just been so new. And for me, it stands out because none of my parents went to university my dad graduated school, but my mom didn't. They, they didn't have these opportunities that I now have. And so I often think about how if they didn't create this opportunity for me, I just as easily wouldn't have had that either. So as much as each thing that I've been able to do has been really new and scary, it's also been amazing. So I, I often just look back and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I think everyone said something that resonated with me. The having a life outside of school was really important for me, I guess, in, in this year, in the past year as well. And just realizing, like Vina said, different parts of who I am are, are just as special. And I, I'm also learning that to be a good researcher or 
um, whatever it is that you want to do in the future. Like you also have to be good at other things so that you bring a different perspective to um, your field, whether that be like your identity. So for me, being South Asian, being a woman, etc. But also just perspectives that I gain from my interests and hobbies that I do outside of school. It was such an enjoyable experience doing that roundtable, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much to take away from it. We should definitely do this more often. All right. So before we wrap up this episode, Dr. Bagal shared with us some very encouraging words in one of our email conversations. In it, she said, oppressors will work to disempower you. Their oppression is predicated upon disempowerment. But never forget that your lived experience is your truth and your truth is your power. No one can take that from you. And with that, we have some final words from Leanne. The advice that I would give to underrepresented individuals who are pursuing STEM um, is first to realize the unique experiences and perspectives that they bring to the table. You know, it's really important to realize that the set of experiences, skill sets, and perspective that you are able to bring to the table is very different from what other people can contribute. And to me, that has been a very empowering thing to realize. Um, on the flip side, I think for an individual pursuing STEM, you know, especially nowadays, there are so many organizations that are targeted towards underrepresented and marginalized individuals, um, like Visions of Science, for example, uh, Her Evolution, for example, just to name a few, the BGSA, the Black Student Association at the undergraduate level. So all these organizations aim to provide that practical advice or practical benefit that underrepresented individuals can actually benefit from. So I think it ultimately comes down to just reaching out, connecting with people. And, you know, I realize that that initial step can feel very different. But once you form, you know, that one connection, then that person can connect you with other people. And then, you know, you form that network, which I believe is really important not just for your interprofessional advancement, but then also just for support. Because at the end of the day, the more mentors you have, the more you realize that, you know, there are individuals who support me and I'm not alone in pursuing yeah, this career field. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, a special thank you to our guests, Leanne, Dr. Beguiled, and Mosin. This episode was hosted by myself and Rachel. Adrienne and Fina helped with content creation. Atifa helped with interviews. Alex was our audio engineer and our executive producer was Noor. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode soon. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. 